0: Okay, so we're continuing our study, going through uh, some of the basic arguments and methods that are used by individuals, normally individuals and groups, that, are trying to find, that try to find ways to undermine Christianity. A lot of this that we're talking about, even though it does take place on the college campus, it does take place in other areas as well uh but but that is the primary arena uh that these kinds of things take place just because it lends itself to doing that very easily Um, and uh, there are there's a lot of college professors who uh repeat things they've heard it doesn't necessarily mean they've studied anything but they repeat things they've heard uh, because they just have a real distaste or maybe even a hatred uh, for christianity A lot of reasons for that, um, but Christianity, it's mere existence, all that it stands for uh, is really against um, every philosophy that's out there. Uh, It's against secularism. It's against all the various movements we have in our society today. Um, You know, the Bible does definitely propose an absolute set of uh, morals. Uh, It does talk about this thing called sin it does talk about judgment, but it also talks about mercy and grace and forgiveness. Um, and uh, so, but there are many who just seek to undermine it. And I've read stories and I've even heard from kids who go to all kinds of different colleges. Uh, and it's amazing the variety of classes where a professor, where in other words, I would expect that kind of, that, an attack against Christianity, I would expect it to take place in a philosophy class. Um, But it takes place in math classes. It takes place in history classes. It takes place in English classes. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like there's a vendetta. So again, we need to be aware of that because those arguments that are raised, even if the individual is only repeating them and they don't really know much about them, many individuals do just accept what's being said for whatever the reason. Some are themselves just looking for anything to latch on to uh, that they can repeat because they don't wanna to have to deal with Christianity or with what it says or God or what have you. Uh, there are a very large number of, of kids raised in Christian homes that go to that go to college and normally within the first two semesters, stop going to church, stop praying, stop reading the Bible. A lot of different reasons for that. It's not just because of this, um, but it does happen. Uh, and then um, uh, these things are, are repeated uh, in debates on tv it doesn't it's not even necessarily religious debates but these things come up and then if you if you do watch the learning channel and the history channel or those types of things you will hear a lot of these types of things being said and they will be said in such a way as if it's a given that these things are that these arguments against christianity or against the scripture are true and uh, uh so we're going to take a closer look at them as far as uh, and show again the fallacy of what's there, and that these supposed contradictions really aren't there. So, one of the main claims they make is that the Bible is just filled with contradictions. So we're going to begin to look at a couple of them. Uh, we're, we're we're kind of looking at I guess you would say maybe a big picture, so to speak, before we begin to deal with um, uh, minute points where individuals try to show how one verse actually contradicts another. But before we get there, we need to kind of get our, our our mind around the bigger issue. So I'm going to read to you from Bart Ehrman. So what I'm going to read is his statement about uh, the Bible as a whole. Now, you have in your notes a quote from uh, Bloomberg. Carl, no, it's not Carl. Craig. Craig. Right. Yeah, Craig Bloomberg, which is very similar to what this guy says. But the difference is, is that with Ehrman his presuppositions that he brings to the table, he views these statements as being very negative and that somehow it shows that the Bible contradicts itself. Contradicts itself, But it doesn't. So let me read you what it says. I know sometimes when you read uh, maybe a long paragraph, it can be hard to follow. Um, but I think you'll get the gist as we get into what uh, Bloomberg says. So Bart Ehrman says this. The historical critical method maintained. So just so you know, if you're not familiar with... Uh, how um, ancient documents are looked at and viewed and studied, uh, there is this, the, the historical critical method is this idea where they, they look at the history of, uh, let's say as a parchment, so they look at the history of the parchment, the history surrounding that time period, uh, they, they, they look at the other types of writings that were taking place during that era, and they do all of these different kinds of comparisons. They look even at the opinions of individuals in that era as far as what they may have said or, or maybe what they didn't say about whatever you're looking at. So it's a, a method that, that believers, that scholars, that non-believers all use um, when they approach um, ancient documents. And, and the goal is to be as objective and as honest and forthcoming to best represent whatever that document is supposed to be, supposed to be or what it says. So that's what that means. So when you hear that, that doesn't mean that, okay, that's just what non-believers do. No, that's just a term that's used as far as this method. So the historical critical method maintains that we are in danger of misreading a book if we fail to let its author speak for himself. And, you, and that would tend to be, I would think, almost uh, um, a- obvious that when you whenever you read, like if you get a letter from somebody, you don't interpret their letter as if someone else wrote it, right? You interpret the letter because of who it's from. So it's from your girlfriend or your sister or your mother. You're going to seek to understand it based on what she is saying. And and that's what you're taking at face value. So the historical critical method basically says that you will misread a book if you don't let the author speak for himself. Uh, If we force his message to be exactly the same as another author's message, if we insist on reading all the books of the new testament as one book instead of 27 books then these we have to understand these books were written in different times and places under different circumstances to address different issues they were written by different authors with different perspectives beliefs assumptions traditions and sources and they sometimes present different points of view on major issues so when he says that there's nothing wrong with that right now he's but, he, but again he's trying to <coughs> Portray the Bible in the worst light possible. And the reason why you hear me quote a lot from Bart Ehrman is because, uh, A, at one time he claimed to be a Christian. B, he got a degree from Wheaton College and from Moody Bible College, which a lot of Christians recognize as being solid schools. Uh, He was, I don't know if he was in ministry, he may have been uh, for a while, but he was kind of raised in the church, so he's very familiar with our language, how we think, what we say, what we do. And so he's actually very dangerous. Uh, It's not that, again, when I say all those things, I'm not saying, oh, don't listen to him because you're undermining your faith. Christians don't do that. We're we're not worried about all these attacks. But we do want to call out exactly what it is. That's why this guy's effective. Um, And as we work our way through different things he says, more and more of his methods will come to light, and you'll see why he's successful uh, in undermining the faith of many people. And it's not because of the facts. It's got nothing to do with that, but we'll see that all right so again a lot of conservative scholars have been saying the same thing that he said so it's not a big deal so uh, now if you look at what uh craig bloomberg says he says in the midst of scripture's unity we must not lose sight of its diversity it takes several forms the books of the bible are written by different authors in different times and places to different audiences in distinct circumstances using various literary genres each book thus displays unique purposes and themes In some instances different portions of scripture are so closely parallel that we can postulate a literary relationship between them and assume that their differences are intentional sometimes theologically motivated sometimes merely for stylistic variation so that's just a fancy way of saying that when you read the bible uh you can like when you read matthew matthew doesn't say the exact same thing mark does in the same way two different individuals wrote the book two different purposes. Both writing about the life of Jesus, you would expect there to be differences. Uh, and we've used before the illustration of World War II. I don't know how many books are written on World War II, but there's thousands, I guess. Uh, and they don't say the exact same thing. Um, they're all pretty close, and a lot of things they all have in common, because history's history, uh, but they all have their, their, their viewpoint, which again, doesn't mean that's their opinion, but some are written from the viewpoint of being a German soldier. Some would be written from the viewpoint of being an American soldier. Some would be written from a viewpoint of maybe a politician. And this goes on and on. And so they all bring their different views. And so they'll see things or notice things that others may not have noticed. So there's no misinformation in those things. Uh, There's just going to be different details that you didn't get before. and, uh, and it's always, and, it's, and again, so that's just, again, the Bible is the same way. It's, it's not any different. So Ehrman and Bloomberg, they pretty much say the same thing. It's very, si- uh, very similar. Uh, but again, they're presuppositions. What they, what they already believe to be true and what they already believe to not be true do uh, affect the way that they interpret the Bible or interpret what they see. So they both argue, yes? Bloomberg, a Christian? Yes, Greg, Greg, yeah, he is. So both argue that different writers have diverse theological emphasis and should be allowed to speak for themselves. And so all that would be just the norm. Um, as you know, even if, if, if you're married, you and your, you and your spouse uh, can both tell the same story and it's going to be different because you both have your own unique perspectives on what took place. Uh, it's not different. Like you wouldn't say, you know, well, when we were in honeymoon in Guam, and then your spouse says, yeah, well, we were honeymooning in France. Okay, that, that, you wouldn't have that. But what you would have is a difference in, you know, when we had our first dinner, and maybe she's more into, well, the waiter did this, and the waiter said that, and he's like, well, I don't really remember that. I just remember that the food was all over the place, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, that's just, again, all, all, to say all that, that's just normal. But sometimes when these guys get up to speak, they make it sound like there's a conspiracy and and that attitude is really very powerful uh when you're talking to an audience and they think you're the expert and again many of them already are in tune because we like to hear negative things to a degree about certain things christianity usually is the top of the list anything you can say anything about christianity they want to hear it and so uh we just have to be aware of that so with all that being said um Let me uh, jump to this. Um, So what we will call a test case. All right. So this is what Bart Ehrman does. He talks about the depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus that's recorded in the book of Mark. And he compares it to what's recorded in the book of Luke. And so what he says, he says, well, in Mark, when Jesus dies, he is in despair. He's unsure of what's going on. And in Luke, Jesus is in complete control. And so he'll say, that is just, that's just bizarre. Both cannot be true. So there's a contradiction. And, then, and his thing is, is then that then, then, the, then Jesus is what he would call the Jesus myth. Different people made up things to suit what they already want to believe. That kind of thing. So let's take a look at these things. And see if what he's saying is true. Again, as we've already mentioned, Mark and Luke are different when it comes to what they record about the death of Jesus. Uh, so, number uh, first thing, number one, when you read the Gospels, none of the four Gospels claim to give an exhaustive account of all the things that happened on the cross. Okay, that's not in there. All right, so we get we get bits and pieces for whatever the reason. Like if you were, if you were just to read books on the attack on Pearl Harbor, you probably could read six different books, all going into the details, and and they all will have things to add the other guys missed. I mean, it's unbelievable how many how much detail can be in just that one event that took place over several hours uh, on December seventh, in 1941. It's incredible. Same kind of thing here. So again, this is not an unusual thing. Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, There is this, among some military uh, experts, they say that when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, uh, they made three major mistakes. As we all know, when they attacked Pearl Harbor, it crippled our Navy. Um, We were in big trouble. Um, And if they had done three other things, uh, the war may have turned out a whole lot different. Worse on our part. Uh, Number one, when they they bombed the battleships, uh, because the belief back then uh, and it was still true for a while, that the main uh, state to having uh, naval power was the battleships. And so they just... And they caught them there, and they sunk a bunch of them, and they damaged them. Uh, but as we know, if you were just to read through World War II, naval battles changed to where the aircraft carrier became the superior tool. And that's how you got naval superiority. So the carriers weren't there. But anyway, so when they... Um, When they bombed Pearl Harbor, number one, they did not bomb the sub base, didn't touch the submarine base. Number two, when they bombed Pearl Harbor, there's all these tanks with all these oil reserves, didn't touch them. (laughs) It could have been a huge fireball if they had nailed those things, didn't touch them. And number three, they didn't touch the dry docks. Because if you you read about Pearl Harbor, that afternoon, they're towing boats into uh, the dry dock and they're getting rid of the water, and they're fixing the boat. I mean, they just recovered incredibly fast. If they had bombed those three areas, um, it would have taken longer, if ever. We would have been, able, we would have been unable to recover. Now, you'll read a lot of books on, on the attack of Pearl Harbor. They won't say that. They're not lying to you. not keeping it a secret. That's just not their, their point uh, in, in whatever. Another book that I read, that was the point. Uh, as they were kind of speculating as to different things. So the Gospels indicate that Jesus was on the cross for three hours or more. They all say that. Uh, There was all kinds of various events that took place during that time. Uh, Each of the evangelists that wrote their Gospel was free to pick and choose from the various details of the day. Um, um, uh, Bart Ehrman, he stresses that in Mark, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in chapter 15. And that's in contrast to Luke 23, 46, when Jesus was on the cross and he says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Mark also indicates that Jesus let out a second cry, which is in chapter 15, verse 37. In addition, the four gospels provide other details and utterances by Jesus. And so there's several sermons called the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Because when you put all the gospel accounts together, that's how many different times that he spoke and we have these phrases that he used and we we look at them so we know that uh, when jesus was on the cross he experienced a series of diverse emotions as he died on the cross secondly while it is true that luke does emphasize jesus control of the situation more than mark does ermine really plays up the difference for more than it's worth he claims that Jesus in Mark dies in so much agony and despair that he is not even sure as to why he's dying. That's what he says. Except, if you look at the Bible, in the book of Mark, and you just back up a few chapters, and you go to chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples exactly why he was going to die. In Mark ten forty-five, he said, For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, well, let's read the rest of the story. All right, let's get all the facts together here. So what takes place again, is if you're giving a, a lecture to an audience who probably isn't all that familiar with the Bible, they're not really all that interested in reading about the Bible, you start telling them where the Bible says this and in Mark, and the Bible says this in Luke, you can begin to assume almost that's all that it says. So when he says that Jesus, when he was dying, he had no clue why he was dying. And you're like, man, my, my preacher never told me that. Why did he not tell me that? I just, or, or somebody would say, well, I never thought of that before. You know, well, there's a reason for that, but anyway. And, and so, but if you just back up a couple chapters, you find out that Jesus wasn't confused as to why he was dying. He knew exactly why he was dying. Now, was he in agony? Absolutely. We know that he suffered on the cross and he suffered greatly. Uh, there's uh, various related accounts in Mark where Jesus predicts his death uh, again, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, he predicts his death. That's why he was there. Uh, when he was facing the agony about, about what he was about to suffer in Mark, uh, that was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, get up, let's go, because my betrayer is near. So he's, he clearly knows what's going on in the book of Mark. You know, this lost individual who has no idea what's going on, that's, that's not Jesus. But what bar done is selected a few things to paint the portrait he wants to paint and communicate what he wants to communicate. You will find, again, in debates or in these types of settings, and it's not only religiously. People do that kind of thing all the time. You may hear politicians misrepresent what another politician said. Like they'll quote them and, and they're correct, but they don't, they don't tell you what he said before that or not afterwards. So it can, it can alter how you view what they've said, all right? And that's why I said what we have to be careful of as Christians is to make sure that if we're talking about another religion or even Christianity or someone else's point of view, we don't do the same thing. We need to make sure we don't do that. Um, because uh, what happens is it really undermines your credibility or, and the credibility of your message. If, if, you're, if you, let's say you're talking to, whether the person is Roman Catholic or a Mormon or what have you. And let's say that you tell them some things about Catholicism or Mormonism. That's true. But you don't quite give them the full story. You give them what's called, it's called the straw man argument. You give them the weakest argument possible to destroy their, to destroy the religion. If they learn later that you did not represent all the facts well, or that you held back maybe certain well-known facts, then even if you made a great point they'll normally they'll just dismiss everything you said and so that's why it's very important that we that we don't do that um, as christians and we we don't need to do that there's no fear with what any other religion says or teaches um the gospel of of christ is very clear uh and it is the power of god to salvation and if others question it we should have we should have no fear of what any any kind of question anybody has has you may not always know the answer, and that's okay. We can find the answer, because there are answers. But we don't have to be afraid. Of it. We're not ever trying to trick anyone into salvation. We're not, Remember, we're not selling a used car where you want to get someone to sign on the dotted line before they lift the hood and see there's no engine. All right? All right? The goal is is we want them to have their eyes wide open, so to speak, and realize that um, we're not trying to manipulate anybody into the kingdom. Um, we want to be and that's just in case if you've ever come here you will notice that when we sing a final song uh when our service ends we don't sing 10 verses of just as i am and the reason for that is because that kind of there's a system behind that, there's a philosophy behind singing a lot of verses as the last song and part of that's to manipulate people it's to manipulate them emotionally to make it an emotional decision now it doesn't bother me if somebody's emotional when they if they are convinced of their sins, and they give their life to Christ. If you're emotional, that's fine. But I I want to be an emotion that's come about spontaneously from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not because I've been yelling or not because we're toying with them by maybe a song we're singing or how many verses or those types of things. Have you ever gone to an evangelistic campaign? They all don't do this, but some do this, where sometimes the evangelist at the end you know, he finishes the sermon, they sing a song, they sing two verses, and he stops, and he tells everyone a story. The story is some young man was in the back row, he was, he was being convicted of his sin, but he, he would not come forward, and he left church that night, and he got hit by a bus and died. And so they tell you that, and that's to kind of get you to move. I, first of all, I don't even know if that kind of story is even true. Maybe it is. But we don't need to do that. There's no reason to do that. Let's let the word of God work on their heart. And perhaps they need to go home and wrestle with whatever. And they'll get saved the next day. Um, but that type of thing has happened in churches. Sometimes more often than not. And that gives Christianity a bad name when that begins to take place. Because people begin to recognize that. But we need to realize that the power of the gospel message is enough to convict men of sin and the spirit of God to draw them to himself without you and I trying to find a way to trick or manipulate people to say the words or to say a prayer um, we just we don't need to do that um, and so the same kind of thing is being done here by him on the opposite side in trying to undermine the faith so again Jesus uh, is in the book of Mark is in control he's he knows why he's here He is going to die, and he knows that he's going to die, and so he's not this confused individual who has no idea what's really going on. So he's not lost control of any situation. Uh, In the trial before the high priest, Jesus provides a testimony that that even led to his own crucifixion. Uh, They used his words against him, but he wasn't holding back on the truth. So Luke does highlight Jesus' confidence in the face of suffering, and that element is not missing in Mark. So again, what Ehrman has done is kind of exaggerated uh, the situation. The deep anguish of Jesus that that Ehrman points out, which is prevalent in Mark, is also evident in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus asked the Father to remove the cup of his death. Uh, And two verses later, uh, Luke describes Jesus as being in anguish And his sweat appears like drops of blood falling to the ground. So again, we we don't have the missing element of anguish. It's all there. So there's a completeness that's there. There's a soundness that's there. And this is just very intellectually dishonest because I know Erman knows better. He's been the Moody, he's been the Wheaton, he's read, he's taken New Testament survey, he's taken a class on the Gospels, because that's what they teach in those schools. So he knows that. He's even had classes where they went through the details of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, comparing all four gospels. Because there's a few other areas where people try to say, where well, there's a contradiction here and there's a contradiction there, and he's already heard how those have been answered. So he's being very he's being dishonest. Why? That's just definition. That's wicked. You know, it's sin nature. Yes, sir. Is it really being dishonest, or just the way that they have a paradigm and they wish to prove, and they want it to debate, and they don't want to investigate it and uncover the truth in its totality? They just want to win. The debate. I do believe that with it is possible for many for that to be the case, but for him, it's not because I because I do know he does know. You know, I've actually, I mean, I've heard a couple of debates he's done. He's he's aware. So for him, he is being intellectually dishonest when he, you know, it's almost like the kind of Wizard of Oz, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain, you know, just listen to me, kind of He's a thing. manipulating facts. Oh, absolutely. And you can do it very easily by just skipping a few things. <laughs> um, I mean, we, we get mad at our kids, we're giving us half-truths, you know, my son comes and tells me that, you know, my daughter smacked him, I'm like, what? And then she says... Well he pushed me down the stairs. Now, that doesn't mean it was okay for her to slap him. Well, actually I told her it was, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> but he left out the fact that he was the instigator and he shoved her down the stairs. Alright, so people do that. You know, he was my son was being dishonest. Uh, he was being deceitful. All right. Uh, Is there any guess why these guys I mean, it could it, well. With 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 different people who do that, there's always there's different reasons, you know. Sometimes it is because they, you know, there's been a few individuals, male and female, who have deviated from the faith because they were unfaithful to their spouse and they hooked up with somebody else, and they don't they don't want that to be condemned, and so next thing you know. The Bible doesn't condemn this, and it's all okay. Uh, others may become disillusioned for whatever the reason. Uh, sometimes that may be just a lack of, I don't want to say just a lack of maturity, because it's not like they're kids. I don't mean in that sense. But there's been some individuals where uh, they are, uh, let's say they're faithful to the Lord, they, or they appear to be, uh, and they're, they, they're getting their education, their degree. Let's say their mother gets really, really sick, and the, their mother dies. They're not ready for that. And so they blame God. God, why did you do this to me? I'm doing everything you've said. Now, even though even though when they do that, most individuals know that, well, first of all, the Bible does tell us death is a part of life, that everyone's going to die, that there's an appointed day. I mean, it goes on and on and on about all that kind of stuff. And that if your mother died, even though it is tragic and sad, you are not unique. We also know that God doesn't owe you anything at all or anything uh that you think you may have done. You know, all those things are true. It's not the best time to say it at that point, but the bottom line is is that there are people who've done that. They've walked away from the faith because of that. Um some have walked away because of uh, a tragedy within their own relationships. Um I've heard some really horror stories coming out of married students in seminary. Um, you know, there's a young couple, they're, they're Christians he's in seminary to go into the ministry you know all these good things and they're they're getting ready and and he's a senior uh, or he's entering his senior year and then one day she wakes up and there's a note on the pillow and he says I found somebody else and he's gone I mean I'd be like what what happened and sometimes she he's clearly there's some issues with him sometimes with him she she may think why would God let this happen This is so unbelievably tragic and so that she turns away from the Lord but there's been many who haven't you know their church has been there and they've worked through this horrific situation uh, and that kind of thing so there's a lot of that type of thing it's not always about relationships but there's a lot of that kind of thing that goes on where for whatever the reason an individual may just be intellectually smart but they've not really absorbed what the scripture says in their life that's why What we try to do here is, even though I want people to know a lot about the Bible, it's really important that we ingest what's being said and that it affects the way we think and our attitude and our view. That's why there are times when I preach sermons, I will bring up opposing views so people hear that this is out there. Then we'll also talk about, well, what happens if you're depressed? You know, what is the, does the Bible say anything about that? You know, I don't, do, I don't necessarily do a topic. I don't say 10 ways to overcome depression by using the Bible. I, I'm not doing that, and I don't think that's a good idea. But I will investigate maybe the roots of that based on what the Scripture says, which that alone gets me in trouble anyway. But the idea is, is that we become more prepared to view everything in life through the lens of Scripture. That's what we want to do. And the goal is for us all to mature together. I know I think very differently now than I did 10 years ago and that's just because of ongoing exposure to the word of God and to other other individuals who know the word of God who've taught me whether it's by books I'm reading or sermons I'm listening to you know that kind of thing um, as well as stuff I kind of dig into, my own, I dig into on, on my own so you have these individuals who for whatever the reason uh, and then there are those who do simply decide one day they just want to pursue sin for whatever the reason you know, I want to cut loose, I want to go drinking. I want to do drugs, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And that happens. So, yeah. So there's all kinds of reasons. And for him in particular, I've never really tried to find out if anybody's ever talked to him about that. And I don't know. So, you know, if you want to investigate it, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I just know that he happens to, I use him because he's written a couple of books. That I've read where he goes into his attacks on Christianity so it's very easy to formulate responses because it's all right there in writing Um, so I was actually glad that he did that I'm not recommending you read them but if you want to go ahead but it's you know he's full of baloney say the least all right there's there's a big one here and and it'll take us a couple weeks to go through it and I want to make sure that as we go through it, that as I go through the scriptures, that you're understanding what the scripture says, because it's a very complicated issue. And it's been uh, an issue where there is some disagreement within churches for years, and that is, um, people will, some people will say that when it comes to salvation, and when it comes to God's law, that there's a contradiction in what the Bible presents. And what they mean by that, just I'm um, going to oversimplify it right now, what they mean by that is when we speak of salvation, we say that salvation is free, it's by God's grace, you only have to believe, it's by faith. And then people will say, but when you read the Bible, there are times the Bible talks about God's law, and that you need to obey God's law to be righteous. And so they'll say there's a contradiction. Is it by keeping of the law, or is it by grace? Because the Bible says both and both can't be true now there's a lot of misrepresentation in what they're saying but they will point the verses again at different passages and they will begin to try to draw that out and it causes a lot of confusion uh among uh both believers and then also non-believers as well and uh, can be very discouraging so so like if you hear me use a phrase like pauline theology that's just a simpler way of saying paul's theology it's just about what that is, you know. When most of the New Testament was written by Paul, uh, and so we say Pauline theology. That means it's the theology we draw primarily from his writings. Uh, but no one, no one should be an individual who only believes Pauline theology. We believe the theology of the Bible, what we derive from Paul and Peter and John, and of course Jesus uh, would be very important. But that's kind of sometimes a lot of these issues like this come up where there's a Apparent contradiction in the things that Paul has said. And so that they focus on him uh, because he's written so much of the New Testament. So again, uh, in Paul's theology, salvation comes by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus apart from following any requirements of of Jewish law or of the Mosaic law. So Romans chapter 3 verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So again, all that verse is saying is that there is a righteousness of God, which is the, the, um, uh, the expectation that God has for us, the righteousness also that, that he may give us. There's a righteousness, a righteousness that comes from the law, but he says there is a righteousness that is apart from the law. And that's when Paul begins to, in the book of Romans, gets into this righteousness. How do I become righteous so I can go to heaven? That's kind of the, the, one of the questions that Romans is trying to answer. And so some think that Paul confuses the issue. So, obeying the law of God is not going to give me a righteousness that, I, that will earn me heaven. Can't happen. Salvation is not of the law. But there is a righteousness that God reveals, which is a righteousness which is through Christ, which God gives to me. I believe in Christ. God declares me just, and He imputes the righteousness of Christ, to my account. So I now possess his righteousness. Uh, the illustration I, that I like, that, that is my personal favorite, is uh, in the New Testament times, when you were invited to a wedding, if it was a well-to-do family and a big wedding, the way that they would send you a wedding invitation was to send you a special robe not necessarily super expensive, but a special robe. It was a unique robe. So then when you were approaching the house out in the country, they could tell from a distance if you were invited or not. Because you wear the robe. And that robe gets you in. You don't have the robe, you can't get in. Uh, very simple. So the right we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. So when I die... I'm not sure of the exact details of how this goes, but let's just say I'm traveling that road to heaven. <laughs> all right? I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. I don't show up just as Bob Dimmitt with a bag of all the good things I've done. Because that's not going to get me in. I'm dressed in his righteousness. So, in, in essence, the righteousness of Christ that I'm dressed in is recognized, and I'm, I'm let in. That's why all those jokes about Peter at the gate, checking for your name, that doesn't happen. All right. <laughs> if 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 someone's looking for your name, you're already out. All right. The idea is is there's no stopping. The gates are open for you because that's what you're dressed in. So that's this yes, righteousness. righteousness no that's right. There's no baggage. Yeah. Uh, and so that is this other righteousness that's revealed by God. It's a righteousness that God gives to you, and that's what that's talking about. So the law and the prophets, which is the Old Testament. They do point to Jesus uh, because Jesus is God's ultimate solution. So again, as you know, or at least hopefully you know, we must trust in Jesus uh, because he's provided atonement for our sin on the cross. But again, when, when Bart Ehrman is giving his lectures, he says that Paul disagrees with things that Matthew says. So let's look at Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 17. Jesus is speaking and he says this do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets I did not come to destroy but to fulfil. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Erman says then is that in Matthew, the entire law is intact, and it has to be kept. And Jesus even says that when it comes to the keeping of the law, you have to do it better than the Pharisees. And if you don't, you don't make it. And then he says, that's not what Paul says. So we have a contradiction. So you can just, you know, throw it away. And as we look at this, hopefully when we finish, you realize that that is not what Jesus was saying. And there is no contradiction. And it is very easily explained, not explained away, but very easily explained so that we can understand it. So for Ehrman and Matthew to be great again meant keeping the least of the commandments and getting into the kingdom meant keeping the law better than the Pharisees. So the law they're talking about, the law of God, it's the law of Moses. Remember, um, there's 613 commands. Uh, that's, you know, where we get the 10 commandments from. The total number is 613. You got to keep those perfectly. That's what Ehrman's saying is Jesus says here in Matthew. Um On the other hand, for Paul, again, getting into the kingdom, which is a different way of saying of being justified, again, is made possible only by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And for Gentiles, keeping the Jewish law, like being circumcised, um, all that has to be done. So Ehrman then makes a real big deal about this. And as I said, it can be fairly involved. Uh, He he will speak usually pretty rapidly. Um, Everyone just kind of assumes everything he's saying is correct uh he's not very sympathetic towards any kind of similarities he just says that you just take it for what it says and that's it so uh we will begin to look at that and we can do a little bit of it now just kind of let me explain um what jesus says and doesn't say in matthew to me i think it just becomes clear but nonetheless all right so number one uh when jesus is speaking uh, there are those who hate jesus and they have been saying that Jesus has been teaching against the law right, now why would they say that now again these are certain groups of Pharisees that don't like Jesus so keep in mind that during this time when Jesus is there when you read through the Gospels there are times that Jesus will say you have heard it said and you'll say something and he'll say but I say so when he says you have heard it said normally He is speaking of what's called the tradition of the elders Uh, the other official name would be the Mishnah and that is it's the theology of the Jews the Jews looked at what they called fence laws if you're familiar with that remember there's a 613 commands the idea was to build a fence of other laws around the law of God and that was to serve as a protection for you so if you break the law of the fence so to speak that prevents you from going on the path to break the law of God. And they made it clear in the beginning that the fence laws were not the law of God. It was the laws that the Pharisees were coming coming up with to minister to the people. But through time, they equated that and the Mosaic law as being the same thing. And so, but Jesus is always, he's pretty clear. He never speaks against the law of Moses. He never does that. He does sometimes... Uh, speak against their interpretation of the law or he will speak against their tradition which is that's normally what that is. It's an interpretation of the law of Moses. And he goes against that on purpose. So then, here he wants to make sure they understand he's not coming to destroy the law. It's not what he's doing. Alright? So, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. He says, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Which is actually very key. What in the world does he mean by I came to fulfill? And so as you read, now if you read through, again, Romans, and read through uh, a lot of the other parts of the New Testament, what becomes clear is that the law was pointing to Christ. So to to make it, to shrink it down, one of the reasons God gave the law was to prove to man that he can't keep the law. Because man thinks he can. Give me the law, tell me what to do, I'll do it. And I'll earn my way to heaven. And God says, well, here's the law. And the man can't do it, all right? So, but I was pointing to there needed to be one who could keep the law of God perfect. Uh, That way he was sinless. And then eventually, you know, we would say that Christ fulfilled the law for us. Again, that's why I have his righteousness. He kept the law perfect. I can't, all right? So he came to fulfill the law. So he is like the goal of the law. Uh, in that sense he's the conclusion of the law that's what's being meant there and most of that is described in the book of romans to help us to understand that all right so but jesus goes on he says for surely i say to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle if you're not familiar with that jot and tittle those are marks that are made in the hebrew language of the smallest marks there are so we would say there's not one comma not one period Okay? Nothing, is, nothing is, is going to be destroyed or pass away or fade until all is fulfilled. And there's a great deal that's going to be fulfilled. That's Christ coming, dealing with sin. Uh, we have his resurrection. We have him coming again. We have him uh, uh, ruling on the earth. All, he's going to fulfill all of that. Um, and that's what he says. It's not, the law will not pass away until it's all fulfilled. Then he gives the norm, which we also have repeated in other places, like in Hebrews. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Hebrews tells us that if you break the law on one point, you've broken the whole law. Because right? even though the law has 613 commands, it's viewed as one standard, or like one ruler. You know, you have a ruler or a yardstick that's got all the markings of inches, but if you break the yardstick, well, the whole thing's no good. All right, same idea. So you have the law of God. It's you have all these components, 613, but you break one, the standard is perfection. Well, you're not perfect. Uh, and then, of course, if you go to the, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is actually interpreting the law of Moses for them. And what he tells them in that sermon, there's a lot of things he tells them, but one of the main points he tells them is that it's not just outwardly keeping the law, inwardly. And some of the examples he gives them shows them that even though they may have been keeping the law outwardly well, they're still guilty because they've broken the law because of what's in their heart. You know, that you walk with me uh, with the verse, you know, where the Pharisee, where Jesus says you've not been with another woman, good for you. But if you look at a woman and you lust after her, you are an adulterer. And that's where he reveals to them, this is God's standard. This is what the scriptures are teaching. Um, and many believe that when you even look at just the Ten Commandments, uh, nine of the commandments are dealing with external things, except for one, and that's coveting. What is coveting? Coveting is internal. It's in your heart. You, whether you, you may steal nothing, but if you're coveting, or someone else has, that's a sin. So the law, even in the law itself, it's revealed that the standard that God has is both outward and inward. And so Jesus just explains that um, to the people and to the Pharisees. So again, he says, if you, if you, uh, if you um, break the least of the commandments and then you go ahead and you teach others, then you're the least in the kingdom. But whoever does and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom uh, of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes, the Pharisees, you will by no means even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that statement needs to be understood in this context uh, or with this background. That's this. In Jewish society, the, some of the greatest people in the eyes of the average man were the Pharisees. They were viewed by people as the individuals who kept the law perfectly. You want your son to be like Rabbi so-and-so. That's your favorite Pharisee, and he's a godly man. And then Jesus comes along and says, Oh, by the way, unless your righteousness exceeds there, you'll never enter. Which they would just then be sitting in exasperation. Their their thought would be, Who can get saved? If I have to have more righteousness than this. So you think of the most godly person you've ever known in your life or ever heard of. And if God says, You know what? If you're more godly than them, you can come to heaven. And you think about it uh it's already too late uh, and so that's so jesus was was saying speaking that in in you know hyperbole on purpose to make that point so that's the point that jesus is making there he is not teaching here that salvation is by keeping the law but that's what bart ehrman says and to those who are unfamiliar with what jesus is saying it, that to them it, on the surface it sounds like that's what jesus is saying and again, some individuals who, again, remember, you know, a person can go to church for 20 years, listen to all sermons for 20 years and never hear them. You know, you're not paying attention. You're daydreaming. When do we get out of here? Is, is this the Sunday we get fried chicken? Is it next week? I mean, there's all kinds of things that are going on. You know, I, I know I heard my dad preach for years. I, I wasn't listening to a bunch of, I began to after a while, but, you know, but there was a, there was years of sermons. I just, I don't know where that went. Uh, so it can happen. So uh, again, that's why individuals again fall for this. The reason why I, I stress that again is because sometimes we think, sometimes we, we think that um, we just don't see how an individual can fall for this. Just just so you know, it's just it's very very possible. Um, there's all kind of reasons why. Let me just give you this real just this one thing about just human nature by itself. I used to think for a long time. This is. Back in my twenties, before I I did any study on this topic, when it came, I used to always wonder how do people get caught up in all these different cults? How do you how do you get to the point that you're following some man and you're willing to give him all of your money and your property and do whatever he says? How do you get to that point? And I kept thinking, all these I guess these cult leaders just find all the idiots in the world. And then as I begin to study it, you begin to find out that in these cults there's doctors, lawyers, people that we think, wait a minute, not a whole lot of idiots I know become doctors. And these are smart people. How in the world? Now, I've learned some of it about, you know, uh, manipulation and psychology and all that kind of stuff and all that's very, very interesting. Uh, but, But human beings don't ever think you can't be fooled because you can. That's why I, I mean, I, I remember, I still do this, but when I was younger sitting in the Bible and listening to different preachers and reading books, I was, Lord, please, don't let me be deceived. Because, some, you know, the worst part of deception is when you don't know you're being deceived. That's what that is. Um, and, the, and the worst kind of deception is self-deception. That is hard to break out of. You know, you might deceive me, and I might think you're such and such and such and such. Well, you know, that's just not a big deal. But when you deceive yourself, that, that's a whole new level. And I've, I've seen that, even bizarre aspects of that. Um, if any of you are familiar with the story I tell of a Jamaican man who thought he was Abraham Lincoln, um, it's quite, it can be quite bizarre, and they can be quite convincing, and they've convinced themselves. So again... Um, so, so as we, so as we have just looked at Matthew 5, through 20, and you look at it in context, um, Jesus is clearly, I think it's clearly that he's not teaching, um, salvation, uh, by, by works. So if you would turn to, uh, let me see where the next, because I skipped everything I had in my notes, um, Uh, we can't do the next passage. All right, let me read to you a thing by D. A. Carson. Uh, D. A. Carson is, uh, if you've not heard of him, he's a Canadian. Uh, he's brilliant. Uh, he's a very solid believer. Uh, he's written some commentaries. Uh, they're usually pretty good. Uh, he's just uh, one of those. He's one. Of the, he's one of those guys that reads seven hundred books a year. Just so you know, I mean, and that's and I don't mean skimming. I mean reading. He, he, he can read super fast. He's never taken a speed reading course. He's one of those guys that has an incredible recall. He probably remembers 80% of what he reads. He's just a uniquely gifted individual, um, to say the least. And he's uh, a very solid believer. So he says this. Uh, By now it is clear that the Summer on the Mount, that's Matthew 5, 6, or 7, is not, and then he uses this word, soporific sentimentality, designed to induce a kind of feeble-minded do-goodism. Nor do these chapters tolerate the opinion that Jesus' view on righteousness has been so tempered with love that righteousness slips to a lower level than when its standard was dictated by the law. Instead, we discover that the righteousness demanded by Jesus surpasses anything imagined by the Pharisees, the strict orthodox religious group of Jesus' day. Christ's way is more challenging and more demanding, as well as more rewarding than any legal system can ever be. Moreover, his way was prophetically indicated before it actually arrived, as Paul says in Romans, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And Romans 10.4 affirms, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So as usual, in Paul's writings, the word law likely refers to the Mosaic law, The word end, which is the standard English translation for the original Greek word telos, is inherently uh, and intentionally ambiguous. End could be referring to Christ being the termination of the law or to his serving as the goal of the law. Most likely, the word in its present context combines both nuances and is best understood as conveying the sense of culmination. Paul is saying that the Mosaic law has reached its goal and therefore ceases to play the same central role it had prior to Jesus coming, though it is still relevant as it is seen through Christ. And so that's what he's getting at. The law has not been thrown away. We read the Old Testament. We study the law of God. We understand it in context in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And again, the Bible is presented as as one whole unit. So we're not diminishing the law, but again, there's no contradiction uh, in those two things. And so as i said he goes into this big thing where he tries to point out uh that there's this differences in salvation and it's not there but remember that differences does sometimes show up even in some churches or in some denominations there are some churches that do teach that you have to uh, follow the law and do the law so that you can um, make it to heaven they won't say it quite that way but there is confusion within christianity that's why Studying the Word of God is important, and why we cannot really get the depth of Scripture from 30 second sound bites. You know, we live in a world that's what we want. We want 30 second sound bites. I mean, I prefer to hear the news that way because there's a lot in the news I don't care about. But when it comes to the Bible, you can't learn the Bible that way. Um, it requires thought, it requires study, um, and that kind of thing. And um, so, we will go through a few more things uh, the next time we get together and then what we'll do is we will then begin to look at uh a verse by verse thing not not on this subject this subject will be done but where someone will say well in ezekiel 3 it says this but in isaiah 4 it says this um and that's a contradiction and some of that you can find actually all of it you can find as far as the contradiction there are websites that are called one thousand contradictions in the bible just so you know it's out there i I'm not telling you to go read it or to undermine your faith. Uh, all those have been answered. Because there are other websites that says 1,000 countries in the Bible answered. <laughs> all right, so the answers are there. Uh, but it's just very interesting that there are certain ones that are much more compelling than others. Others are very simple, number things, or whatever. Uh, but again, part of the reason why that is successful is because Christians have said, "If you can find one mistake in the Bible. We'll throw it away. I'm not saying we shouldn't say that. I'm fully on board with that. Um, But again, all these things are supposed contradictions. They're not really contradictions. So again, we stand really on very solid ground. But imagine what it would be like for an 18-year-old who's never heard that. If you've never heard any of that kind of stuff, and all of a sudden this guy shows up who sounds authoritative, has all these degrees, can quote Bible verses left and right, and says all this stuff, next thing you know, you're like... I I don't know if anything I've been taught my entire life is true. It happens, and so uh, we need to be prepared ourselves. So, and I think most to be able to help others. But even if you hear sometimes these things being said, um, you won't begin to wonder. Well, I wonder if I missed something. Um, you don't have to worry. Uh, stands on solid ground. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace, your kindness, your love. We thank you, Lord, again for your word, for the credibility of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the many men and women that have come before us that have spent thousands of hours studying Scripture and studying the Hebrew language and the Greek language and have been able to answer all of these supposed problems that are in the Bible to show us that, again, your word is true, that there is no error. There are no mistakes anywhere in the Scripture and that we can believe every single word that's there. For that, we thank you. Without that, Father, we would be lost. We ask, Lord, again that as you continue to teach us and lead us and direct us, that you'll keep us safe and that you'll see fit to use us in the lives of others. Help us, Father, to be a blessing to others. We do thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.